It's the blandest of the bland, in my opinion. Suitable for patients recovering from surgery. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and guys that always want to know more so that we can more intelligently complain about things get together to talk about albums from Robert Dimer's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We're going to get into the background of the artist leading up to the album, talk a bit about the recording, and at the end, we are going to vote and tell you whether or not you really do need to hear this album before you die. Now, if you haven't heard the album yet, don't worry. We're going to do deep dives on some individual tracks. And in the spirit of that, I am going to throw on the first track off of this album, which is called Hotel California, because, of course, we are talking about the Eagles' 1976 release, Hotel California. You probably have all heard this song before, but just in case you have been living under a rock with your fingers in your ears going la 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 <laughs> since 1976 here is hotel california Excellent. Glad we're all on the same page. Now, by way of introduction for our cast of complainers, I'm going to throw it around the room for our tweet-length reviews, and I am going first to Adam. Hey, everybody. This is Adam. And for those of you who don't know, I live just outside of Philadelphia, and there's some fun little Philly accents that you hear in this area. And one of my favorite things that stuck in my mind this week was people from Delaware County who call Eagles the Eagles with an I. So all this week, I've been thinking about the Iggles, but I have a very short tweet here, and it is, Iggles, Masters of Melody. 
you don't mean the Eagles. You mean Eagles, right? Cause Just Eagles, yes. exactly. Because I assume they would refer to both the team and the band as Eagles. Yes. And they are wrong about that. Their name is the Eagles. I don't care what yeah. they say. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Carpenters and the Carpenters. Really? Come on. All right. We are going to go next to Phil. Hey, guys, Phil. And Adam, just to clarify, I also live in the greater Philadelphia area. And for the rest of the episode, I will delineate between the Eagles and Eagles as Eagles and E-A-G-L-E-S Eagles. Okay. So, to be clear. <laughs> Thank you. You're talking about the famous chant that everyone did at Eagles shows to get themselves pumped up, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> of, course of course. So my my tweet length review on the week is Don Henley or Don Fagan, biggest asshole in smooth rock? Question mark. Ooh. Biggest Don asshole? Because Glenn Fry sounds like kind of an asshole too, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and we're going to throw it over now to Rob. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for throwing it to me. Before I do my tweet-length review, we have a little collaboration here today. We had the guys from the Album Nerds podcast send us over some pre-recorded tweets for Hotel California. These guys are great. They're, they're treading in a lot of the same water that we are, and we've been looking for ways to collaborate with them. So let's go ahead and play one from, we have two from them. So let's play the first one now from co-host Don, also named Don. How convenient. Hello, gentlemen. This is Don from the Album Nerds podcast. Thank you for letting me share a tweet length review. Here it goes. Hotel California is the least challenging and most accessible concept album of the 1970s. I desperately want to hate it, but Henley Ballads and Walsh Felder Guitar Mini seduce me into shame-filled satisfaction every time. Thank you again, guys. I hope this really wasn't wasted time. See what I did there? Very nice. And you didn't waste time again by doing it twice. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're just going to play one more from another co-host from Album Nerds Podcast. Uh, this gentleman calls himself Dude. Hey guys, this is Dude from the Album Nerds Podcast, here to give my tweet-ish length review of the Eagles Hotel California, a true 70s classic album combining its sun-soaked vibes with a tour through the perils of fame, loss of innocence, and the dark underbelly of the American dream. Concept. Swap the cowboy hats and mustaches for big collars and private jets, ditching the ideals for reality. Don Henley, kind of a douche. Okay. Dude, how is your tweet length review not, I hate the fucking Eagles? That's the only acceptable tweet length review because somebody calls themselves dude. Or, you know, duder is dudeness or El Duderino. I was sad to see that Alan wasn't joining because, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of Lebowski elements to talk about here, but we can cover them without him. Missed opportunity. No, great tweets, guys. Appreciate yeah, you nice. coming in and, and giving a balanced tweet, I think. The one that's going to follow from Rob here is going to be quite a bit snarkier. So my tweet-length review of Hotel California is, So syrupy sweet, I had to stop by the dentist to check for cavities. <laughs> so maudlin, I had to double-check I wasn't watching the Hallmark Channel. And ultimately, so disappointing, I had to make sure I wasn't engaging with Philadelphia sports fanship. Wow. Oh, man. Shots fired. Are we talking about the same album? This is going to be a good episode. I'm really <laughs> excited to hear Adam get really pissed off. We might get an F-bomb out of Adam. This is going to be great. <laughs> All right. And uh, this is Tom. I am going to be leading us through our flight down 
eagle's i don't know pathway or whatever the fuck flights go down <laughs> uh flight path there we go that's the one nice my tweet length review is following the release of their massively successful greatest hits album the eagles were looking to take their sound in a new forward-looking direction they then give us one track of new sounding stuff and eight that could have been on any of their previous albums early boosh <laughs> it's a little bit of an early boosh but Let's jump right into our general impressions. How did your week go? Adam, you can get your fawning out of the way now. Just tell me about how this is the greatest thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the 90s and 2000s, when you all were experiencing new and different music, I was basically listening to this for the 400th time. Hell was freezing over again. (laughs) It was. (laughs) No, but there's also, I have a soft spot in my heart for the Eagles or Eagles, I feel like it was after their Hell Freezes Over concert appeared on PBS because I didn't have MTV or anything that I could actually watch. (laughs) It appeared on MTV, and I remember going over to the piano and figuring out Wasted Time, and that was kind of like something snapped inside of me, and I really started going hard on music. So this week was fantastic. Another great excuse to put on headphones and listen extremely loud and even do some of the, you know, get some of those ASMR vibes on some of the harmonies on this album. Yeah, the harmonies are undeniable. I definitely have no problem with the Eagles formula, certainly. I did find this album to be a little bit of the Eagles formula. I'm not talking about lyrical subject matter. I am talking about song construction and what they kind of lean into. I basically had to wipe the slate clean on Hotel California, the song. Because everyone's heard that song a million times. Which is hard. It's honestly, hard. It's right? hard. Yeah. But that's a damn good song. Impeccably produced, really well written. It's it highlights the best part of Don Henley's lyric writing. And I think that overall I was pleasantly surprised with that song. And it being the first song on the album, which I had never heard this album in its entirety before, it left me hopeful that I was going to get something that was outside of the rest of the Eagles catalog. And this didn't seem to be that much of a departure from the rest of the Eagles catalog, with the exception of that one song. Yeah, I would have to agree with a lot of what you said, Tom. I think I came in real hot, of course. I found plenty to like on this. It was also my first time listening to any Eagles recording all the way through. But the title track and the first track is so good and we're going to talk about it individually, of course, that I was really genuinely excited to get into this record this week and had very, very high expectations. So I think what I'm experiencing is a come down of those expectations because I do not think anything on the record matches, as you said, the songwriting, the literary lyrics, or the production value that's to be found in the title track. So that's a high bar. I get it. But that just bummed me out a little bit. And I think at its worst, these songs are just boring and a little underbaked, but have lots of beautiful harmony on them, which I understand makes them extremely palatable and smooth. But that's just not that's not enough for me. So that said, I found a few things to like. I'll, I'll let you know some of the some of the other new discovery songs I thought were were quite good. But there was some bland stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys said have said a lot of things that I could agree with. I like the comment from our, you know, our, our guest tweeters that this is a seventies concept record. Uh, I, you know, I, I was like, 
you know, when, when I'm asked to look at a record through that lens, it, it was an interesting week. We'll, we'll hit some different songs. I have some odd trips down memory lane with this record that have nothing to do with Eagles. But Adam, I think to some degree, I'm, I'm at least coming at it from your camp a little more, right? In that I think I grew up with a lot of Eagles around the house. I definitely remember Hell Freezes Over and, you know, uh, wanting to learn Joe Walsh's flamenco guitar intro, uh, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> totally, so, yeah, yep. So, I, yeah, I definitely can relate to 12-year-old Eagles are cool. For those who might not know, Hell Freezes Over was the reunion tour. Right. In the 93, 90s. 94? Yeah, 94, 96, that zone, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. After they famously said they would get back together when hell freezes over because of their insanely acrimonious breakup. And I never really thought of this as a concept album. I thought that their other, I think it's just the self-titled Eagles album is where they got together and said, let's make like a country album, that that was more on the concept. But I, I didn't find a through line. And Tom, you'll probably tell us more about the overall concept of the album, but I, I didn't hear any through lines that made this an actual concept album, aside from just a, a bunch, in my mind, of just a bunch of really great songs put together. I don't think it was inherently conceived as a concept album. It was more of a deconstruction of the glamour of the rock and roll lifestyle and the allure of that West Coast dream okay. that they had individually pursued and were kind of over at this point because they were in a gigantic band and couldn't stop fighting with each other all the goddamn time. And it sounded like they were miserable, not all the time, but there was a lot of acrimonious relationships going on there. And I think that the drugs and the money and the fame and the pressure really led to a lot of that. And they were trying to pull back the curtain on that and saying, as an observer, you look at me and think that I have this amazing lifestyle and this is what so many people would want. But let me tell you, there's a lot of bullshit that goes along with it and a lot of stuff that I hate about it. Does that make a concept album or is that just you writing about what you're living through at the time? What the band's going through, right? Yeah. Right. And we are going to dive into what the band is going through. But first, we're going to do a quick by the numbers now the eagles do have another album on this list it is their first album just titled eagles that is on this list so i'm not trying to exhaust all of the by the numbers for this so we're gonna do a quick by the numbers here the first number is two out of three which is the number of eagles albums that are in the top three best-selling albums in the united states of america of all time Jesus. They own the number one and the number three spot of the best-selling albums in the U.S. of all time. Wow. And yes. is this one of them? This is one of them. This is the third best-selling album in the U.S. of all Jesus. time. The number one best-selling album in the U.S. of all time was their Greatest Hits album that was released right before this. Okay. Well, I guess we're going to talk more about it, but I think that's... You... Did they have some hustle to like move vinyl? I, dude, I don't even know. I think it just hit at a time yeah, where like sure. a whole bunch of people just finished dentistry school or something like that. <laughs> I need my music with no edge. <laughs> so 26, the number of times that this album went platinum in the U.S., 26 million copies million? in 
the U.S. alone. Jesus. For the record, their compilation greatest hits albums went 38 times platinum in the U.S., <laughs> which is just insane. And one week is how long it took Hotel California to go platinum. It was released December 8th of 1976, and it went platinum before the year even ended. It went platinum wow. in the same month it was released, which is absolutely insane. And then the last number that I'm going to put is just basically every goddamn one, which is the number of chords that a beginning guitar player knows that is in the intro to Hotel California. <laughs> I'm sure you all remember learning how to play Hotel California when you were like originally learning how to play the guitar and yeah. F sharp minor seven was like, you were like, oh yeah, I got an, I got an F sharp seven in it. here. This is great. But it does break all the rules. It breaks the three chord pattern rules and it breaks out of key and it's some nice, it is a really nice chord progression. It's a great chord progression. For the people who are not familiar with playing an instrument, there's A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Those are the chord possibilities. And in any key, you're going to have an A or like a B flat might be in there, but you're not really going to have a B flat and a B in the same key, in the same key. So really there's just A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And in the beginning of Hotel California, it's a B minor, F sharp 7, A, E, G, D, E minor, F sharp 7 again. So you basically have all the chords except for a C are in that intro. I did a really thorough breakdown of this if we want to get to it now, or do you want me to save it for well, let's, later? Let's save it for the song. Right. Let's save it for the song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, can I just say, because I feel like I already came in hot on the Eagles, and you implied it with this their record sales, which are impressive by anyone's metric that I have to immediately give them credit for being a band that kind of got popular on one style of music and transitioned into having hits in another style of music. Hotel California is one example, but I think you could argue the life in the fast lane mode of the Eagles is also a, a pretty big departure from some of their earlier hits before Hotel California. I think it's important to give credit where credit's due. That's a cool thing for artists to do, even if I don't like it. Absolutely. And I will say that my week was better than I thought it was going to be after my first listen through of the album. I did have that same thing with you, Rob, where it was a come down. I listened to it. I loved it at first. Kind of had a little bit of come down afterwards. I'm hoping that you, dear listeners, do not have a come down after listening to this episode and listening to other episodes of ours. We really do try to put some quality product out there for you guys to hear and we really appreciate we you know we listen we look at our listener numbers they're going up every week very happy about that if you want to write a review give us four or five stars whatever we would absolutely love that we do have a patreon we've been seeing people signing up for our patreon we really appreciate that we put a ton of work and a ton of effort into doing the research to try to give you guys more context on some of these classic albums so that you can sound like the biggest know-it-all jackass at the next dinner party <laughs> when somebody pops on an album and you can just Com bust out some facts. Completely yes, insufferable. Insufferable, <laughs> but right. That's the important part. Insufferable, but correct. There you go. Yes, yes. You're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. <laughs> and if you want to go ahead and join our Patreon, we certainly would appreciate that. Buy us a beer. 
it certainly helps when we're doing that late night research to have a, a few brews to lubricate the process. And the last thing is we have some T-shirts. We've been seeing some people buying our T-shirts, which is fantastic. Get that 1001 Album Complaints T-shirt. Show everybody that you care so much about music that you're willing to listen to an hour and a half long podcast about a 37 minute long album just so that you can know everything <laughs> there is to know about it. I just want to point out, I, I recently was at an adult dinner party, and I had that moment you're talking about, and I just got blank <laughs> stares. I can't remember what factoid I dropped on some unsuspecting listener, but... Did you lead in with, um, actually? <laughs> they made the mistake of mentioning someone we had covered on the podcast, and I had at it. <laughs> it's quite satisfying, and yet, yet you also do get the looks of like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Actually, I had a conversation with somebody today. I wasn't on this podcast. I'm not trying to bounce around. When you guys covered the band, was the weight on the, the track yes. list? Yes, yes. Is that a live yeah. vocal take with drums? Did that come up? That didn't come up. I actually don't have the answer to that. Yeah, God okay, damn it, just, Phil. Yeah. Way to out-asshole <laughs> the asshole. <laughs> right, we, we can move on. Yes, because I actually have a lot of background on the Eagles. So we're going to dive right now into the background of the Eagles leading up to the artist. And the story of the Eagles starts, as every good story does, with Bob Seger. <laughs> Bob Seger, born in 1945, a legend of the Detroit scene, pioneering a Detroit sound that combined blues and rock. He basically created music that was the best version of a local dive bar rock band. He is a killer. If you're not familiar with Bob Seger, Congratulations, you get to become familiar with Bob Seger. That's a great thing to have in your life. I wish I could wipe the slate clean on Bob Seger and listen to it with fresh ears. Well, specifically the old Bob Seger, just to be clear, because I think he's been unfairly maligned by the Like a Rock era. Of I like <laughs> the GMC like truck a era. Rock. I like yes. Against the Wind. There's nothing wrong with any of that shit. They're good, They're good songs. They're well-written songs. songs. I'm simply suggesting to the uninitiated, go back and listen to Live Bullet. Like, start oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. So, Seeger, he's playing all around Detroit in the 60s. He's playing in the 70s. He is, like, the regional, like, local rock hero. And the great thing about it is that there is this kind of burgeoning Detroit rock and roll scene that's going on which Detroit has the Motown lineage. And so clearly there was a whole lot of Motown sound going on, but people were taking Motown, mixing it with this kind of rock scene that was emerging there and coming up with a great new sound. So Seeger, he's killing it in Detroit regionally all throughout the 60s and 70s. He eventually breaks out into the na national spotlight in 68, signs with Capitol Records, releases the debut album of his band, The Bob Seeger System, which, the ball's in this man, to name his band The Bob Seeger System. <laughs> I love this. It's pretty, it's pretty badass. But they released their debut album, Ramblin' Gamblin' Man. And the title track of this album features an artist that Seeger had come to know from the local scene, and that is a man named Glenn Fry. Glenn Fry was also born in Detroit in 48, so he's a little bit younger than Seeger. From an early age, he's steeped in music. He starts playing piano at five learns the guitar shortly thereafter he's influenced by this really vibrant music scene that's going on in detroit led by guys like seeker and he is really into it completely enamored with the scene he starts joining different bands joins a band called the subterraneans while he's still in high school 
As soon as he graduates from high school, which is 1966, he joins a band called The Four of Us. That is where he credits learning how to sing four and three-part harmony, which, as we talked about before, you hear bands, you hear a band like The Eagles singing four-part harmony, and you're just like, oh, yeah, that's just like four-part harmony. It's really not easy to do that. It's you have to impossible. cut your teeth. You got to cut your teeth doing that. You don't just walk into the studio and that shit happens. You, you have to know what you're doing with that. And so he gets this musical education playing in this band, The Four of Us. He is in that band for about a year, leaves, and he forms a band called The Mushrooms in 1967. And they're playing all over the Detroit region, and that is where he eventually catches the eye of Bob Seger. Now, Seger had just started a label called Hideout Records. They signed The Mushrooms. Seger actually writes and produces their first single called Such a Lovely Child. He's impressed with Fry, and he thinks that, hey, you should come and play with me. I would really love you to play on my album. I actually want you to join my band. So he ends up coming and playing on Rambling Gambling Man, the title track of his first album. And bear in mind, Fry is just 19 years old at the time. And he is like, this is fucking awesome. I'm on this like local legend, a guy I've looked up to for my entire time coming up through the music scene. I'm on the title track of his album. I'm going to join his band full time. This is fantastic. Fry's mom puts the kibosh on him joining Bob Seger's band permanently because they got caught smoking weed together. And she's like, he's a bad influence. Night move. That song is clearly about cocaine. No, I'm just kidding. That song is about having sex while on cocaine. (laughs) So basically, Mama says he can't join the band. But he is prominently featured on one of his tracks. And for many musicians, that would be the pinnacle of their career. But he has other ideas. Glenn Fry has some other ideas. Mostly that he wants to reconnect with his ex-girlfriend who has moved to L.A. and tried to get her music career off the ground. So, 1969 rolls around. He packs up his stuff, moves to L.A. with the hopes of reconnecting with his ex-girlfriend. And three weeks later, he's back in Detroit because that did not go as planned. (laughs) Apparently did not pan out. But while he was there, he met this guy named J.D. Souther. And he's like, you know what? Fuck this. Detroit sucks. L.A. is where it's at. I got to imagine that he came back to Detroit and it was wintertime. And he was like, I was just in L.A. And there were women walking around in bikinis. And now I'm back in Detroit and everybody's got parkas on and the factory's laying people off. I got to get back to L.A. This is where it it is happening. And so he basically says, all right, I'm going to give it another try. He moves back to L.A. and he starts a duo with J.D. Souther, who's like another singer-songwriter guy. They form a band called Long Branch Penny Whistle. And my parentheses on there in my note is stupid name, because that's a stupid <laughs> fucking name. <laughs> that's, that's pretty stupid. Yeah. They have like a tiny amount of success. They get signed to a record label called Amos Records. They release an album, but they're super poor. They're not doing well. He's living in the crappy apartment building. He happens to also live directly above one Jackson Brown at the time. And Jackson Brown is another singer-songwriter. He's writing a bunch of stuff. And Glenn Fry says that during that time, he actually learned a whole lot about songwriting from Jackson Brown because he would hear the evolution of Jackson Brown's songs as he's working on them, coming up through his floor. And he's like, oh, wow, you put that part in. Oh, wow, you changed that part. Oh, that's so much better. That flows so much better. 
So he was sort of like by osmosis getting this songwriting clinic from Jackson Brown, who I'm not a gigantic Jackson Brown fan, but he's a good songwriter. Well, you wrote one of the early Eagles hits. Yes, yes. Well, clearly they had a friendship developed at that time as well. Two musicians, poor as shit, living together. No jobs. Probably not doing anything really except for putting out uh, unappreciated albums at the time. (laughs) So Glenn Fry is in this guitar duo signed to Amos Records. And in 1970, through the record label, he is introduced to the drummer of another band on Amos Records. This band is called Shiloh. And the drummer of that band is one Don Henley. Cooler name for a band, I think. It is a cooler than name. And the other for a one. Band. Yeah. Well, we'll get to how they got to that. Because all the right. story of Don Henley and Shiloh begins, as all great stories do, with Kenny Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> Dropping a few more names. <laughs> another <laughs> another rambling, gambling man, eh? Yes, exactly. right. right. <laughs> so. Basically, Don Henley, he's born in Texas in 1947. He grew up in a painfully small town of Linden, Texas, a place that to this day has a population of less than 2,000 people. Jesus. So middle of goddamn nowhere. You're living in Texas in the middle of goddamn nowhere. You're in high school. What do you want to do? You want to do what all Texas high schoolers want to do and play football. And... Don decides, yeah, he wants to play football. The only problem is that he is he's not a big guy. He eventually tops out at 5'10", but he's like a skinny, tiny kid. And he plays for the football team, but eventually he gets cut. And the coach basically says, listen, kid, you're never going to play football. You should join the band. And I think the coach thought it was like a diss. But like, you know, as we said, the you know, your podiatrist office will never be the same after Don Henley decided to join the band to take up the drums. <laughs> <laughs> So, basically, it's 1963. Henley is a drummer now. He's in high school. He becomes a founding member of a band. They're a Dixieland band. They're called the Four Speeds. They almost immediately changed their name to Felicity in 1964. So, Henley is 17 years old in 1964. So, he's still in high school, but he's got this band, Felicity. They are grinding it out on the local scene. They eventually get a record deal. They release a few singles that were written by Henley, but it doesn't really go anywhere. Henley is determined to make it as a musician, though. So 1963, they form the band. 1964, they changed their name. They get a record deal, I think, in 1965. They stay together until 1969, when they just so happen to randomly meet Kenny Rogers. And he's like, I dig you guys. You guys got a good sound. Let's see what we can do. Kenny Rogers basically record, has him record a few singles. They're all prepped to release it, hit it big. They got Kenny Rogers behind it. When one of the founding members, and again, they have been in this band since they were like sophomores in high school. And mm-hmm. this is six years later. One of the founding members, Jerry Surratt, is killed in a dirt bike accident right before they released their singles. Jesus. Jesus. So for most people, we're talking like we've all we're on high school bands like the bond that you form with your yeah, high school man. band. You've been in that band for mm-hmm. 6 years trying to sure. make it happen. Kenny Rogers, the motherfucking yeah, yeah. gambler. Yes, he <laughs> wants to he put your you songs and, out. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the guys dies. Most bands would basically say, "That's it. We're done." I can't handle this anymore. They don't. They basically say, we're going to soldier on. And Rogers actually moves them out to L.A. 
has them stay at his house and gets them signed to Amos Records and says, hey, we're going to put out our first album. They put out their first album. And through grinding it out in small Texas clubs, through the death of one of the founding members, they stay together. They put out their first album and they break up. Because Don Henley has creative differences with one of the other guys. In the oh, band. oh my god! Yeah. Foreshadowing. Uh, Foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. And before we move off of Kenny Rogers, because he's about to exit our story, I did just want to bring up I, this factoid that I heard the other day. I, I read this story online the other day. I can't independently verify it, but this sounds like one of my favorite fucking stories of all time. Apparently, not that long ago, Kenny Rogers. I mean, maybe like 10 or 15 years ago, Kenny Rogers was hired by some fucking hedge fund manager to play a private show. And he's playing the private show and he plays the gambler and the hedge fund manager's like, I want you to play it again. And Kenny's like, no, I'm not fucking playing no. the gambler again. And the guy's like, I will give you more money. Play the gambler again. So he plays the gambler again. He's like, I want to hear it again. He's like, I'm not fucking playing it again. <laughs> it's like, I will give you more money. Play it again. Smash cut to... Kenny Rogers has played the gambler 12 times in a row <laughs> and earned an extra $4 million. Oh, my it. God. And then Holy the 13th time was too much. And he says, no, I'm not fucking doing it anymore. I've I have got- $4 million plus what you paid me to come here originally. I'm fucking wow. done. I know I- when to fold them. I'm yeah, walking yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah, here's, here's, a th- here's a question. I wonder if he said, show me the money. The other question is like, you know, you never count your money when you're sitting at the table. So how did he know he had $4 million? Right. <laughs> oh, that's fucking ridiculous. Anyway. I think that is, so uh, that is an amazing story. But I think that is also a microcosm of what corporate gigs are like for these artists. Or if you fly to Whew. an Arab nation to play for some chic or something like that, that's, that's more or less what it's like, right? Yeah, they're just like, I have enough money to turn you into my puppet. And you tell me when it gets too degrading, but I'm going to keep throwing money at you until it does. (laughs) All right, so back to the 70s. It's 1971. Henley and Fry are friends. They had met the year before. Henley's out in the wind with a band that had been trying to make it for the last eight years. They'd just broken up. Fry is part of a guitar duo that is a stupid name and no success. They need money. And they need a creative direction. Enter Linda Ronstadt. Well, this so, is like a who's who. By the way, I knew nothing about the Eagles' history, so this is fascinating. Thank all you. Right. All right. Glad to see you didn't do any research, Adam. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Ronstadt, she's going on tour in 1971 to promote her album Silk Purse, which, yeah, for the guys in the Eagles, that's the band you want to back up Silk Purse. <laughs> Anyway, so she gets Fry and Henley on board, along with a few other musicians, one of whom is Randy Meisner. And, you know, Randy Meisner is a former member of Poco. Yes. Which Love I, Poco. I honestly have never heard Poco. I use Poco oh, as Jesus. punchline. I know Messina was in Poco, <laughs> but I'm not familiar enough with Poco to know their Timothy stuff. Timothy B. Schmidt kind of, was also you know, in Poco. The eventual bass player. Messina, Meisner, and Timothy B. Schmidt in the same band? (laughs) Oh. Are you sure? (laughs) How did the stage contain them? (laughs) All that sex that they were exuding. Aw. So anyway, they're playing together. They're kind of gelling as a band. And... 
basically, Don Henley and Glenn Fry go to Linda Ronstadt and they say, hey, listen, we want to start our own band. We're making money being your backup band, but we want to do our own thing. And by all accounts, Linda Ronstadt was like, you should 1,000% do that. I will help you as much as I can. Super cool about it. When they were like, yeah, we're just going to kind of ditch this project as soon as we're done making money on the tour. They did actually appear on an album of hers, but she was totally supportive of it. And in fact says, I know a great guy that should be in your new band that you're trying to form. This guy named Bernie Ledden. And so she basically says, I'm going to get Bernie Ledden to come and play a gig. They have a gig scheduled for Disneyland in like June or July. And she's like, yeah, I'll get him to come and play. That's the first time that Don Henley, Bernie Ledden, Randy Meisner, and Glenn Fry all play on stage together. And they all hit it off. Now, Bernie Ledden, for those who don't know, he's a guitar player, multi-instrumentalist, really anything with like a string and a pick he can play. He's one of those guys. He had been born in Minneapolis, but he moved to San Diego to pursue a music career or possibly just escape the brutality of Minneapolis winters. I don't know. I feel like if you grew up in Minneapolis and you, in wintertime, travel to San Diego, I'm you're just like, I'm not getting back on that plane. Going there's back. no way I'm going back to that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's beautiful, and there's beautiful women here. So he's in a couple of bluegrass, kind of countrified band. He moves to L.A. to get in on that burgeoning L.A. bluegrass countrified scene, and eventually is asked to join a newly formed band called the Flying Burrito Brothers with Chris Hillman and Graham Parsons. Uh, we have covered the Fr- Flying Burrito Brothers, the Gilded mm-hmm. Palace of Sin, on this podcast. That was episode 55, for anybody who's curious to go back and check that one out. I believe that was actually one of the ones that Phil led. It yeah. was a long time ago. So Ledden is on Flying Burrito Brothers for two albums. They haven't really hit it big, and he kind of decides it's time to leave. He's been moonlighting, playing with Linda Ronstadt for a bit, and decides that, you know, she put the bug in his ear about joining with Don Henley and Glenn Fry, and they decide that, yeah, I'm going to come and join that band. So we are finally here at the formation of the Eagles. Again, they insist that their name is just Eagles. They're wrong, <laughs> and I will fight any of the surviving members if they come to they come at me. I like how in 1969 or 68, whenever this was, that the name Eagles was just still available, there waiting for still. bands to take it. Still available, yeah, insane. Yeah. Well, we go back through the history of a lot of these bands. You see all their high school, college, post high school projects. It's all the something. All the the names were still there. There's no the names available now. I remember, Rob, when we were like, the chop. We're like, that has to be taken. No, it's not taken. All right. It's one of the very few the names that's not already taken by somebody. I think it's even accelerated since then because it's so easy to self-publish. So so many more people have published music. And if you count that as being taken in quotes, then yeah. Sure. Yeah, when Rob and I were trying to put out the Ghost Beef album, we wanted to just call the project Ghost Beef. Two published artists called Ghost Beef me? before us. <laughs> yes, which is ridiculous. And they both are not that great. <laughs> oh, shots no offense, fired. Guys, it, but it was different. You guys were not taking full advantage of the Ghost right. Beef name. Let's put it that way. <laughs> By developing lore and, uh, yeah, the yes. whole universe. Yes. They were not, mis- they were not right. meat-based <laughs> at all, which is just a total mess. <laughs> Missed opportunity. All righty. So it's 1971. 
These guys are all kind of known quantities. Mostly, though, it is Meisner and Ledin who are the known quantities. But they get a record contract pretty much right away. They play together on stage for the first time backing Linda Ronstadt in July 1971. And in September 1971, they get signed to Asylum Records. So they haven't really done anything at this point, but they get a record deal. And you definitely would not know from the direction that the control of the band went later on that it was Meisner and Ledin that were the guys that basically their names helped them get a record contract because very quickly after Eagles form, it's Henley and Fry and they are running the show and they are by all accounts, not super open to input. (laughs) (laughs) So, so so basically we're going to jump through a lot of their kind of recording projects up to hotel California, but they get signed in 1971 Ends up being a really good move to sign them by Asylum because their self-titled debut yields three top 10 wow. 40 hits, including Take It Easy, Witchy Woman, and Peaceful, That's Easy Feeling. That's or Desperado? That's just, just called Eagles. Eagles. I think Tequila Sunrise is on that yeah. one, too. Which Tequila Sunrise oh. is not on that one. Right, We're going to get right. into it. Don't try to correct me on the research. I just all right, did all right, shit. Right. My, my bad. <laughs> um, hmm. All right. So you've just put out an album that has Take It Easy. And peaceful, easy feeling on it. What's your move? You got to go out and tour. You got to promote this. Who do you team up with as the perfect band to complement peaceful, easy feeling and take it easy? You, of course, support Yes and they're close to the edge tour. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the most goddamn ridiculous mismatch I could possibly think of. Just unrelenting in your face prog rock. And the band that's opening it up is just like, Well, I'm running down the road trying to loosen my also, load. Like, they couldn't have sort of like different aesthetics and and mythology sort of like yeah. intertwined in the music. Like couldn't be more different. <laughs> yes. yes. If anyone's curious, just put on the track close to the edge, which is the first track on that album. For 30 seconds, and you'll get a sense of how anxious it makes you feel. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's definitely yeah, not a piece yeah, of you feeling take it at easy all. And see, see where you're at. All right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So they tour with Yes. By all accounts, it's pretty successful. They released their second album, Desperado. They're sticking with that country-inflected folk rock sound. It's very evident on their first album. And Desperado was also a success with Tequila Sunrise and Desperado becoming signature Eagles songs, Tequila Sunrise being one of the singles off of that, Desperado, I don't actually believe, was a single off of that album, which is odd because it has become one of those songs that you immediately associate with the Eagles. And I feel like people who aren't even fans of 70s music know right. Desperado. Sure. It's, I don't know if it was on the movie soundtrack or something, but it got it's real become popular. like a karaoke classic, I feel like, you know, which is a hard yeah. lane to... It's a real tearjerker ballad, you know. Yeah. It, I mean, Rob, if yeah. you talked about it, With it might great be an American songbook, you know. Yeah, I think it belongs there. In fact, uh, astute listeners might recall we did a Guilty Pleasures episode, and Phil said that Desperado was a guilty pleasure, and we all made fun of him endlessly because it's just a legitimately oh, yeah, like good song. <laughs> There's nothing yeah. guilty about it. <laughs> yeah. not you like an amazing it, song? You fool. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so they released Desperado, and it becomes more successful than their self-titled debut eventually, but upon initial release, it actually is less successful than 
their first album, it's still very well regarded. So they are trucking along. They're having success. They're not superstars, but they're having success. They're touring the world, also getting into drugs. Now, for now, it seems like it's just the usual 70s rock star Coke splurge. Nothing too serious, but, you know, the Coke might come up later. I don't know. Might Mm. come up later in the story. We'll see. So they're looking to record their third album, and they kind of decide that they want to get away from the sound that they've been doing previously, that country rock sound. They feel they've been a little pigeonholed into that, and they want to bring in a little bit more of a rock influence. And so they decide that they're going to bring in one Don Felder on guitars and pedal steel, because nothing says, let's move away from country rock, like bring a pedal steel player into your band. (laughs) But interesting, Don Felder had known Bernie Ledin since they were young. They both went to the same high school. And as the story goes, Ledin is backstage while the Eagles are opening for Yes. Felder comes to visit him. Felder ends up jamming with them for a bit, and he impresses them enough that they say, hey, why don't you come? We're recording our new album. Why don't you come put some solos and some slide guitar on a couple of songs? So Felder actually appears on A Good Day in Hell and on Already Gone. He provides the solo on Already Gone, which is on On the Border, which is the third album that is released by the Eagles. And eventually they're pretty impressed. And right after the day after that recording session, they're like, you should just join the band. Why don't you just be a a full member of the band? This band needs more guitar players, obviously, and more guys (laughs) named Don. It is also important that they say a full member of the band to him. Because this is a contention that comes up later, where they're sort of like, yeah, no, we didn't yeah, say full sure. member in terms of money or anything like that. We just said <laughs> he's getting member, paid in guitar but strings. Member can mean a lot Already of gone. Yeah, rips. And that record on the border has a great version of Old Fifty Five on it, the Tom Waits song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is. It's a good, good cover. Yep. So, all right, they're trucking along. They record their fourth album one of these nights. Uh, 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 uh. (laughs) and that's the one that really makes them international superstars one of these nights the title track goes to number one their second single lion eyes goes to number two and the third single take it to the limit goes to number four so number one number two and a number four release single off of your album that's pretty damn good life is good for the eagles at this point Life is good? Was that a foreshadowing of what comes next? <laughs> well, life is good unless, of course, you are Bernie Ledin, who is very not happy with the direction that the band is taking, and also with the fact that Fry and Henley are taking over complete control of the band. I believe there's a quote that it comes from Joe Walsh later, where he says, you're just pumping gas at the Henley gas station. <laughs> and it's basically like, you're just it's just your goddamn job. It's like a minimum wage job. You just do what he tells oh, you to do all the time. Ledin is not happy about this. He kind of pictured that at the beginning of the band, he and Meisner were the pros. They were the ones who had had some success. They thought that they were the mature leaders of the band. And Fry and Henley, especially when they started teaming up on Desperado as the primary songwriters, really started exerting complete iron-fisted control over the band. And he was not happy with it. He did not like the direction that they were going in. And it's manifesting itself into lots and lots of fights with Henley and Fry. And from the sound of it, some physical fights with them as well. Very famous story where, like, Glenn Fry is, like, 
talking to everybody in the band about this is what we're going to do next. This is the direction we're going to go. And Bernie Ledden just walks up and pours a beer on his head. And it's like, fuck you. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And it kind of all comes to a head. And in late 1975, Ledden officially out of the band. They try to keep it under wraps for a while, but they're big stars at this time. And they're like, well, why is Ledden like doing other projects and working with other people? And they're like, all right, fine. He's fucking out of the band. So, they got to replace that guitar player. They're not having a guitar There's only five at this point. So they, <laughs> <laughs> so they eventually get Joe Walsh, who is a veteran of much more rock-oriented groups. Like uh, he was in James Gang. He's a solo artist in his own right. He's way more rock and roll. So much so that Don Henley is actually kind of worried that he's like too rock for the band. He's too hard for the band. <laughs> But he's actually been friends with the band for a while, so I'm pretty it's a sure natural it, fit. It came up on a very early podcast that he gave Jimmy Page his Les Paul. So, like, that's how mm. rock and roll yeah. this guy is. He's like, hey, that's... Jimmy Page, you're playing that guitar? Take my guitar. This try one of these. For you. <laughs> yeah, this one is a these. real one. Yeah. <laughs> you know how rock and roll he is? is his voice has been permanently altered by the use of cocaine. <laughs> Yep, yep, yep. And so has his brain. I don't know if you guys remember the very famous Uh rock and roll Jeopardy episode that had both Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray and Joe Walsh on it, where Mark McGrath just destroyed destroyed everybody, including getting the answer correct. Where the answer was Joe Walsh. Oh, God. <laughs> Joe Walsh is standing right next to him and he's kind of looking at him like, You're not going to take this one? Okay, it's Joe Walsh. It's fucking you. <laughs> Goddamn burnout. That's awesome. But, you know, this is the 70s. He's still in his prime and he is like, All right, I would love to join your band. You guys are clearly very successful. This makes a ton of sense. And they are getting ready to you know basically gel this new member and start making a new album this is like late 1975 they're like all right let's start putting some songs together forward looking we're a band that is looking into the future we want to start making some new songs however at this time irving azov who was their manager completely without consulting the band goes ahead and packages a greatest hits album and puts it out in February of 1976. They did not Without know it was going to be released. Them? He did not consult them at all. Holy and crap. He released their greatest hits, 1971 to 1975, and the band is fucking pissed about it. They're like, this is just some cheap fucking money grab from this goddamn record company parasite. I hate this guy. And then and the then- <laughs> paycheck started rolling in. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, it starts selling like goddamn oh, hotcakes. Okay, so it's released in February of 1976. It hits number one in March 76, and it stays on the charts for 365 <laughs> weeks. Damn. 365 fucking five weeks years? it stays on six the years? charts. Over six years? That is, it's 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 like over, it's like almost Jeez. seven years it's it stays on the charts. Turn out the Eagles, the neighbors are listening. Oh, and the Eagles are turned up at this point. When else has that happened in rock history when a band puts out a successful Greatest Hits album and then goes on to have their greatest hit after that? I don't think that's ever happened before. Because it was a premature Greatest Hits album. That's the issue, is it was premature to put that out. They're like, we've only been a band for like four (laughs) years, man. Like, we're, we're still making music. I was a little blown away by that, but... 
also, this makes a weird dynamic, okay? Because you have, right now in the band, you have Glenn Fry, you have Don Henley, you have Randy Messina, you have Don Felder, and you have Joe Walsh. And all of this money starts pouring in from this Greatest Hits album that is going primarily to Don Henley and Glenn Fry. Glenn Fry. And Messina's getting some of it because he's got to take it to the limit on there. Meisner. uh, Meisner. Meisner, not Messina. Meisner's getting some of it because he's got to take it to the limit. But Joe Walsh and Don Fry, uh, Joe Walsh and uh, Don Felder are really not getting that money at all. So they're getting like the splashback experience of being in the Eagles, but there is serious amounts of money coming in. That is we're talking millions of dollars that those guys are getting, and millions and uh, Joe Walsh and again Meisner are just kind of like what getting getting a a stipend once a month or something like it's yeah it. No, Meisner's making money because Meisner's got to take it to the limit. So that's, you know, that's a song Mm -hmm. that he penned and that's on the greatest hits and he's making money off of that. Felder, thank you. Sorry, Felder. Yeah. Felder and Walsh are really not getting that money at all. So money is going to come up as a a big part of the reason why the Eagles break up, which we're not really going to get into. But either way, like they're making a shit ton of money, but then they're also getting intense pressure to put out their next album and honestly like you look back on you think irving azov did a dick move releases the greatest hits doesn't tell the band but they could not have been more perfectly positioned to take advantage of the success of that album because they had already basically written all of hotel california by this point and so the album is released in february they go into the studio in march to try to start recording Hotel California. And then as they're recording it, this greatest hits is just exploding in popularity. And it's not like, oh my God, what are we going to do to follow it up? They're like, we're basically done. We can follow it up kind of whenever. So it was really fortuitous to them because Hotel California, it's recorded in between March and June of 1976, and it is released in December, December 8th of 1976. And to say that the market was primed for it is an extreme (laughs) understatement. Again, it goes platinum in one week. You do not go platinum in one week unless there are pre-orders, there are people who are eagerly awaiting the release of your album. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Now that's American platinum, not Moroccan platinum or whatever we were talking about a couple weeks ago. Dude, the, yeah, that is just in America. And to be fair, the Eagles are a very American band. They are out west, countrified, kind of, you know, the American spirit. That's their vibe. I can see why they are the highest selling album in America, but not the highest selling album in the world. Because Thriller is still the highest selling album in the world. Thriller is more universally palatable, I think, than any Eagles albums are. But we have now gotten to the point where they have recorded and they are releasing Hotel California. Let's start talking about some individual tracks. Now, we went into Hotel California a little bit. It's a long song, so we're going to have plenty of time to jump back into another portion of that. So here it is. Again, the title track, opening track, of 1976's Hotel California. This is Hotel California. We're going to jump you in, I don't know, maybe halfway through this six and a half minute song. <laughs> Mirrors on the ceiling 
The pink champagne on ice And she said We are all just prisoners here Of our own device And in the master's chambers They gathered for the feast They stab it with their stealing eyes But they just can't kill the beast the right song first a which sequencing was definitely correct here and this song definitely justifies its length which is saying something because as you mentioned tom it's quite long so two things that i want to point out about the song one is the writing is crisp and literary and dark it does that thing where it sets a story in motion immediately it paints a picture in your mind immediately So I just think lyrically, it's extremely strong and suggestive of a storyline without being overly descriptive. It's not weighing you down with a bunch of exposition. They're using a lot of vague language in a a literary way. I wish there was more of that on the record, but... You will appreciate this. Basically, Felder wrote the music for it, and then Henley wrote the lyrics, but it was written on a premise that uh, Don Fry put out there. And he basically said, I wanted it to be like an episode of The Twilight Zone, where everything seems normal at first, but it gets more and more wrong as things go on. And he said he also wanted it to be like The Magus, which Rob and I read for a book club that we were in many years ago on Rob's suggestion. And he said he basically wanted it to be like in The Magus, where every time the main character walks through a door or the scene changes, it's a different version of reality. And I think they absolutely nailed it on these lyrics. The lyrics are fantastic. Felder uh, described it as Don Henley writes these little imagistic postcards and you kind of just like you read them in sequence and it tells the whole story, but it's all these little self-contained scenes. That's really good. I think that that is absolutely true. Very cool. I No, I agree. It's so lyrically strong that that was the letdown I felt, that I didn't sense that level of lyrics in the other tunes, and it was disappointing. But yeah, the you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Or even actually my favorite line is, some dance to remember, some dance yeah. to forget. It's perfect. It really is. This is a tough song to top. And again... You've heard it a million times, people. So if you're listening to this and thinking, I don't need to go listen to Hotel California, the song again, do yourself a favor and just try to come at it with fresh ears because I was very pleasantly surprised. Apparently, the original title of the song was Mexican Reagan. <laughs> wow. Whoa. Which Whoa. is a much worse song. Whoa, so that's, that's interesting. So one of my notes, and I'm surprised you haven't brought it up, Tom, is the bass line on this song crushes... And it makes me wonder, like, were they thinking of this as a reggae song? Because if you listen to the bass line from the perspective of a reggae bass line, where he leaves crazy space at sometimes, blows through the one at other times, like it's like, and and then you you pair that with that, 
guitar thing that's happening. Like you would never in a million years think this is reggae, right? Like right. you just would. <laughs> but like, yeah, but I can imagine if you stripped everything out except for that upstroke rhythm guitar you put a different and drum the bass beat line, behind, you'd be like, oh, that's right? pretty different reggae. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And speaking of drum beat, I know it's simple as all goddamn hell. But the opening drum fill of just the doon, doon, right before the drums come in, yeah, it's yeah. iconic. It's so good. It's so perfect. It's like you don't need to show off. Every instrument gets really gets their chance to shine here, and that's what makes it a really amazing hit song. And the other thing that we haven't touched on yet is the guitar solo or solos, which are just as important as any of the lyrics or melodic Absolutely. lines. Absolutely. In Absolutely. the song. And I think that's what makes this a legitimate contender for best rock big hit guitar solo ever. So y- y- we could talk, we, sh- we will talk about the guitar solo, but I think before we do that, we should talk about the chords, right? Tom brought them up before. So like I did a real teardown of these and I think there's two very different ways to look at these chords, right? But like, these are really fun chords to play over. I think like b- before I even talk music weirdness, right? Like, it's just really fun, right? So, Tom, you had al- alluded to like the B minor, F sharp, A, E, G, D, E minor, F sharp, B minor, right? Oh, yeah. Chord progression, right? So here's what I, I did a thorough breakdown of this. This has two things going for it that are really interesting. One, it uses tritone substitution. The F sharp seven to the A and the E major to a G are like a tritone major change. This is the sort of thing that shows up in giant steps. Okay. It's the sort of thing that shows up in Nirvana songs, right? Like it's just a really tonally rich change right so with that in mind you've also got these these dominant chords the f sharp seven and this e chord right which i'll if for you know sake of argument right now i'll call an e seven right so they create this weird little grouping right f sharp seven dominant seven points at a b major right so it means you're playing in b major except this a chord is problematic so maybe it's like b mixolydian <laughs> Then you have a whole change right over to E, G, D, right? So now, again, you've got this mixolydian thing happening. D mixolydian now, though. Thing there is the B to D, that's also another tritone substitution. So we're in like heavy, like music theory territory. And it's just, and it sort of goes on from there. And it never feels like it's, it's forced. You know what I mean? It just yeah. keeps progressing through this chord pad and you're like, yeah, that's the next, that's the next right one. So something that's really interesting about that. And I think this is a big part of it, right? That's a great, that's a great comment, Adam, is it, it, the end chord, the final chord, the F sharp seven, right? The dominant chord, which propels the song forward in a very specific way early when it goes from the F sharp to the A, which mm-hmm. is like where you get the first like major kick right of like harmonic mojo that f sharp really wants to point back to a b major right and then when you start with a b minor it's like it lands on a chord that already doesn't give you a hundred percent resolve resolution like yeah, honestly yeah, right. what's interesting is that they find their way out of the pattern effectively right, right? like <laughs> maybe in a just different go way on forever and yeah, yeah like it lost. could loop forever in a super cool way but then like we're stuck well, I think it's one of the reasons it, it goes on longer a normal chord progression might go on for and just to maybe just to strip down to layman's terms some of the stuff phil was talking about i think just the fact that there are so many chords in the pattern 
mean that there's just a lot of harmonic possibilities of what to do over top of it. Mm -hmm. And it kind of leads you on a journey. Like the song itself is kind of a guy on a journey and the pattern itself is kind of a journey because you get to these yeah. points where you're like, oh, that's not the chord I thought was going to go there, but that's actually the perfect chord. Oh, that's not the chord I thought was going to go there. Actually, that's the perfect chord. Oh, that I last time you hit that, that was an E major, but that E minor, nothing wrong with that. That's that's great. Now, can we say this? This is one of those examples where sometimes we talk about chord progressions that are really awesome, but they're kind of hidden in the mix or in the arrangement. In this case, they knew they had a great chord progression on their hands and they milk the hell out of it. Yeah. Yes. In fact, on Felder talks about how when they were first playing this for the record company, because again, the record company is like, give us a fucking album. We're trying to ride the high of this greatest hits. We need an album. They're playing this. And as soon as Hotel California is done, Don Henley turns to the record company and he says, that's the single. And you will be surprised to know this was not the first single off of the album. This is the second single off of the album, <laughs> basically because they said there's a formula for what will be played on AM radio. And one of the formulas is it has to be three and a half minutes long. Another one, which is a much more hard and fast rule, is you cannot have more than 30 seconds of music before the lyrics come in. And there's a good minute of yeah. guitar before the lyrics come in. But they're like, we know that this is so compelling that it takes the place you don't need lyrics for that first minute i complain a lot about like stupidly long intros this mm -hmm. is not a stupidly long intro this is a perfect intro can we talk for a second about the sort of single note yet harmonized guitar that's going on in the verses of this song i really think that they're just super tasty and super fantastic and nothing crazy and foreshadowing to something we're going to talk about in a second i'm sure very steely dan-esque of just a simple melody in the background that kind yeah. of is carrying through this melodic center of the song i would say that even using harmonized guitars is highlighting the chords that you have as the bed to the mm -hmm. track and really seeing that as the strength of the song which it is and highlighting it and then it goes all the way through the solo and just to pivot back to the solo the perhaps most iconic section of the solo is simply Joe Walsh or Don Felder or both playing the chord tones of this chord progression. Like there's nothing weird in there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're just stacked them up, <laughs> but they sound awesome. That was, I believe Don Felder was like, Hey, I'm just going to do this. And he said, like, you should just harmonize me. And yeah, it becomes, you know, you got the Freebird solo, which is like a lot of, there's a lot going on in the Freebird solo, but this solo I think is better. And it also highlighted like the competitive nature of Joe Walsh and Don Felder, because they were both trying to outdo each other on the licks. They're trading licks back and forth and they're trying to mm -hmm. outdo each other. And you can tell they both brought their A game. They really, really kill it. So... Two things. I have heard two different stories about the origin of this song, and I'm curious if either of them came up in anyone else's research. The one I had heard is that the song is stolen from Jethro Tull and a song called We Used to Know, or at hmm. least this chord pattern is stolen. And that they I were sued. Did not hear that. I think I think they lost. And there is, you know, no, you can I check out the Jethro Tull song. It's I think Jethro Tull lost, or or he dropped it. Yeah, 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 exactly. They, Jethro Tull lost. Yeah, but the chord pattern is very similar. 
I think it's a similar chord progression in a different key and a different tempo and all those other things. So it's, yeah, yeah, it bears some resemblance. And I heard that uh, at least Don Felder like toured as an opening act for Jethro Tull for some amount of time. Ooh, or, that's sus. Because because I think there was there was a date issue where the Jethro Tull song didn't come out. It felt like they couldn't have known about the song based on the release gotcha. dates, but then oh, I yeah. heard an extra anecdote about touring with the band before that, so they might have heard the song. So, mm. gotcha. Interesting. So the other one was a story that I had heard. It was like a YouTube video. I couldn't find it this week, but it was Felder basically saying he recorded the chord pattern and the end guitar part on vacation in Hawaii. Yeah, he was on vacation and he had a drum machine with him yeah. and a guitar and a bass. And so he recorded the guitar and the bass with a drum machine back up and he sent it to – and Don Henley was like, that's the one. Let's yeah. and, do that. And when he got back to L.A., the song had been recorded – in a different key and they were like get in the booth and start stacking your guitars up buddy <laughs> I want to say to be clear you can't copyright a chord progression there's there's sort of only so many of them and honestly <laughs> right. I think plenty of money has been made on just opening the real book finding an old yeah. Duke Ellington song and just taking that chord progression <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe making <laughs> right. one slight change to it and writing a melody over it yeah. new melody so I feel like it has to be mentioned I know it's common knowledge amongst this group of people but it might not be common knowledge amongst the common folk the little people out there listening to our podcast <laughs> but Jesus. the all right line, <laughs> they stabbed it with their steely knives but they just can't kill the beast is a response to the steely dan song everything you did where they say turn up the eagles the neighbors are listening and that was a very specific like oh they kind of gave us a shout out we're going to give them a shout out or they kind of dissed us and we're going to diss them right um, anyway nice. we've gushed about this song a whole lot and we're going to move on in just a second but i do have one complaint about this song this song is impeccably produced it is basically flawless Except for right at three minutes and 28 seconds when they do the what a night bring your alibis that line the band is ringing out and then they cut it very directly. There's no slope fade. It's just do and it cuts out like that and it sounds like such an obvious edit that. It really, upon like many, many tape, close right? listens, I was yeah, like, yeah, that is yeah, like... Yeah, I hear that. Like, like Henley should have like overdubbed that one line across both or something. Like they or they should have just like, bring your alibis, and give yep, it like a, a yeah. quick slope cut and not a sharp cut. And I heard it and I was immediately like, oh, that sounds unnatural. Because as much shit is going on in this song, I do feel like it has a little bit of like, I could picture that there's a bunch of dudes in a room playing the song. But you you do that, it takes me right out of it. You guys might think I'm a nitpicking asshole Busted. or maybe think I'm crazy. But that is like... <laughs> kind of that, the whole premise of the podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. Nitpicky assholes. <laughs> it's never bumped me. It has never bumped me in the past, but I was really trying to do a deep, deep listen to this. And that was the one thing that I could complain about in this. Song. I understand. We got to find something to complain about. It, yeah, that's, yeah. It's, it's fair. All right. Let's move on to the first single off of this album, New Kid in Town. What?
walk on the street, it sounds so familiar. Great expectations, everybody's watching you. This song. <laughs> well, this sounds the most like the old Eagles, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, thank God they're moving forward. Forward-looking sound. <laughs> yeah. We got this new guitar player. We got to use him. Just stand in the yeah. back and don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when people say they hate the Eagles, they're thinking of songs like this. This <sighs> is the song they're thinking of. Man. I'm very torn on this song uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I think just the arrangement of this song, the sort of layout, you know, Wurlitzer, acoustic guitar, Telecaster, vocal harmonies. Like, this is a formula I will fall for. But the real reason, the real reason I have a soft spot in my heart for this song has absolutely nothing to do with the song. Uh, when I was a kid, I had a Don Cherry's Hockey Night in Canada VHS tape. The and there was a, this one, Phil. <laughs> and there was a rookie's blooper reel. A blooper reel of rookies fucking up in the NHL <laughs> circa 1986. And it was set to the new kid in town. New kid in <laughs> town. Wow. When I think hockey. Hard cross checks, <laughs> fist fights in the corner. I think no, 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 harmony. no, 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 no. To be clear, this was more like the rookie getting hit in the groin with the puck. Yeah, <laughs> physical injury. Sure, yeah. it's not what I think of when I think of this song. If anybody out there is listening and they're like, "Is it the same one I watched as a kid?" Uh, this was also the one with the OT zone. So that should definitely be the icing on the cake. What fucking editor was putting that tape together? It's like, you know what this needs? Little Some eagles, eagles, baby. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess they were really big. I mean, there was New Kids on the Block was a thing at that point already. Oh, yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah. Could have gone with that. Hi, right, listen, let me, let me jump in. I came in hot on the Eagles on this whole record. This song grew on me. This is my favorite new find of the mm. record. It's not my favorite song on the album, even uh, accepting Hotel California. In fact, we we skipped over that track on our focus list, but I do like this song. I think it goes on a little bit too long, but it has some really nice production touches, and I think the writing is pretty tight. I get what they're talking about. They're talking about that Hollywood idea of churn, of you're always, oh, you're hot now, but the next day you're not, and they kind of take that through a few different versions and they do that thing like in night moves where they use the title of the song the chorus line of the song to mean different things at different points of the song subtly right yeah talking about the yeah. different phases of someone's life right they will never forget you till somebody new comes along it's like yeah. one of my favorite lines in this phil did you get dr dog's living 
living 100%, a dream. 100% living a dream at the end. 100%. Totally. Yeah. Uh, this also, though, this exposes the, uh, the this is, uh, what's his name from Detroit? Bob Seger. No, no. What's what's the- Kid Rock. Glenn Fry. <laughs> this yes. is a Glenn Fry song, right? Yes. This exposes G- Glenn Fry's songwriting formula. It also shows up in Lion Eyes and Tequila Sunrise. The formula is male- leaves town or comes to new town or is reminiscing about the time when he was a new buck in that town. Then there's a love interest. She is gone. She is always out of his league. That's the thing. That's, that's the wrinkle that where that tells us who he really thinks he is. She's always out of his league. And then, you know, it goes on to demise. Point taken. All yeah. right. There <laughs> is a key. Ch- <laughs> oh, Sorry, go ahead, are you talking about the? I was. I think I was literally about to bring in the goddamn same thing. You talking <laughs> the about the key, end of the bridge, the key change at two forty two, oh, where yeah, they hit this chord. Yes. Oh my god, it's just amazing. But I have a note on this song where there's the big harmony at the end where it says, "Everybody loves you, don't they?" But she's holding her, and you're still around. And there's this like six part harmony, and I had everything turned up as loud as it could go. And I I think I would be happy if you could like create a speaker system that would crush me to death and just play, (laughs) play that six second part. And I could die happy. It is one of the best harmonies, group harmonies. I think I've ever heard again, hairs on the back of my neck standing up every time. It is just fantastic. It it reaches such a crescendo. Everybody loves him. I'm just picturing you, you know, like in high school, those guys that had like the systems in their car with like the bass, (laughs) just like rattle the license plate. Uh I'm just picturing you rolling around, but your system is like all mid and treble and you're just like blasting (laughs) Eagles harmonies like, yeah, my system dope. (laughs) It's so good though. Anyway. And then you blast new kid in town. And then you blast New Kid in Town, of course. Of and course. everybody and all the ladies are like, All the girls come a flocking. Oh, who is that guy <laughs> in his Toyota Tercel? <laughs> Hatchback. All right. We're going to move on to Life in the Fast Lane. Terminally pretty 
eat this. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> this is such a Joe Walsh song. This is so really Joe is. Walsh. Oh, oh yeah, maybe. I'm sure I can tear down Don Henley on this one too, dude. Yeah. Rob, my first comment is gross, and then I drew a little guy <laughs> throwing up. <laughs> I like that you take your notes on paper, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so you can make little stick figure drugs. <laughs> I, I really dislike this mode of the Eagles, this vocal treatment. I think the writing is really lazy. They shoehorn in way too many car references here by the time it gets to that last verse. It's like every line is a shoehorned automobile. Lines on the mirror, lines on the face. Running you know stop what? signs, trying to get off, bit up and down this highway. It's like, we got it. Okay? You got it. It's a so, many, so many bad sex puns. So many. Right, right. The only thing to like about this song is that the title of the song apparently came from an experience that Don Fry had when he was in the car with his Coke dealer who was driving like a fucking maniac. And he just goes, hey, man, like, what's going on? He just looks over and he goes, life in the fast lane. And they <laughs> continue to drive like a fucking complete huh. lunatic huh. with lots of cocaine in the car. <laughs> Is that Glenn Fry or Don Henley? Because he said That's, combo. I, I said, yeah, sorry. I, yeah, it's Glenn Fry. And... Apparently, this is the origin of life in the fast lane as a saying. In popular culture, it had never been used before. It was popular. So Glenn wow. Fry's this Coke song. dealer coined that Glenn phrase. Glenn Fry's Coke Damn. dealer should be suing him for fucking royalties. Money. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, speaking of things this is the origin of, I blame this song for all she wants to do is dance. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. All she wants to do is dance. <laughs> a, it's so bad. There's a clear lineage here. And if we had killed baby Hitler... In the yeah. form of life in the <laughs> you don't blame it for uh, oh the heat is on. I heard <laughs> Joe Wall say in an interview years after the fact that this was just a warm up riff that he yep. used to do, right? Yep. But, and, and just like you know, Slash and Sweet Child of Mine, but that's actually a good riff versus this. Just this just sounds like a pentatonic warm up. Glenn Fry busted in coke to the gills and was like, "What's that? <laughs> I got this great song idea. It's about doing a bunch of cocaine. Yeah, <laughs> life in the fast lane, baby." It's not. This song is nothing special. Also, you know, yeah, because Adam mentioned they were masters of melody. I think they get some great melodic ideas out there, but because. You could call this a positive or a negative, but because the guitar riff is so snaky and rhythmically weird that they they choose correctly, I think, to sing a really simple melody over it. Da 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 da. Yeah. But it's it's just boring though. You know what I mean? It was the right choice given this weird snaky guitar riff that's totally connected from your vocal rhythm. But it's there's not much melodically going on here. I have a problem with the lyrics in this song, and I, I it's really like they're all over the place, but the first two lines, he was a hard-headed man. He was brutally handsome. Is Don Henley talking about himself? What a fucking dick. What a dick. Well, what does they say? At some point, like, the only thing they had in common was they're both right. in bed, basically. Yeah, like, like, what an asshole. Like, yeah. Oh, God. Fuck so like a volcano, skewed. baby. Yeah. This song, this song had something, like, you know how we always listen in headphones, and we're like, oh, man, I heard cool stuff I hadn't heard before. I had the opposite <laughs> experience on this song. So there's a clavichord in here that I'd never heard before, and it sucks. I'm like, what is this doing here? <laughs> well, you know, that's the kind of thing they had to specifically right. bring in. They're like, no, 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 let's bring clavichord in. Yeah, oh, yeah, this is going to work. This is going to be great. Yeah. 
Uh, we don't have one in the studio. We'll get one. We'll get one in the studio. Which, by the way, I would like to point out that they recorded this album at Criteria Studios in Miami. And you know who happened to be recording? Right next door. In these in the room right next to them at Criteria Studios. In seventy five? Sheila E. One Black Sabbath. Whoa. So they had a clavichord that they borrowed. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently they would have to stop their recording sessions frequently because Black Sabbath was so fucking loud. <laughs> they were bleeding, bleeding into, into the, the, the room that they were trying to record it. And at one point, Sabbath went to go use the room that the Eagles had been recording in. It's like right after they left, because they recorded at two different studios. They recorded in L.A. as well. So after they left, Sabbath went to go record at the same room that the Eagles were using. And according to Geezer Butler, one Geezer Butler, he said, they were doing so much cocaine that we literally had to clean cocaine out of the sliders <laughs> on the fucking board to be able to get the equipment to work when they left. Geezer Butler said they were doing too much cocaine. Geezer <laughs> Butler of Black Sabbath speaker boxes full of cocaine wow. every day was like too wow. much cocaine. Yes. Well done, gents. Life in the goddamn fast lane indeed. All right. Now we're going to go on to the uh, Don Felder written but not lead singer, Victim of Love. was going to be the worst song of the album just by the title <laughs> before i'd even heard a second of this song i was like this is going to be the worst song of the album this is just i don't mind stupid. this are you surprised i in terms of the rock tunes on this album I, I like this better than life in the fast lane i think it's got a little more dynamics to it <laughs> this one doesn't kill me i put rock music quotes <laughs> for this, one. <laughs> this was my low light so i was happy that it made the focus list it's the blandest of the bland, in my opinion. Suitable for patients recovering from surgery. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is so plotting during the verse. It's like, bah, bah, bah. it's just so, uh, 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 plotting. If you're going to save 
a plotting verse, you have to have a good chorus. You have to have a good hook. And this is a really bad hook. I'll give you this that. This is a really bad hook. Is this second to last on the album by any chance? This is not second to last on the album. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Because we, we have an, an ongoing theory that second to last is where all of the artists knowingly put their worst songs. This is second on side two. Right after the Wasted Time <gasps> reprise, which is like an instrumental, this is the one that they're like, let's kick off side two. This song <laughs> sucks really bad. So Wasted Time is the end of side one and the beginning of side two. Yes. That makes yes, a little is. more sense. I feel a little less offended by that now. <laughs> so one of the interesting things about Victim of Love, so Don Felder wrote the song. Don Felder sung the song. And then the members of the Eagles were like, no, you're not fucking doing that. And without his knowledge, went in and erased his lead vocal tracks and re-recorded them without him. And this is one of the things that led to him eventually like being like, I fucking cannot do this anymore. I'm not your employee. I'm going Damn, to leave this band. That's crazy. I mean, it's understandable that they have a high threshold for vocals. And Don Henley is a great vocalist, if I haven't already said it. And I think Glenn Fry is pretty great, too. But I think Don Henley yeah. in particular yes. has a, has a great voice. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of get it, but you could have handled that better, probably. Yeah. You then definitely delete, Then deleting better. his vocals and having him find out when he listens to the record <laughs> home for the first time. <laughs> you never know. These stories could go through a lot of telephone sure. game. Maybe he was all sure. coked out and just decided to stop coming to the studio sessions. They were like, what are we going to do? Well, we got to fix it, so... Well, didn't Dave Grohl do that on one of those early Foo Fighter albums where he basically went in and retracked yeah. all the drums because he just said that... Correct. Yeah, he was just like, these just aren't up to my standards. Now, I'm not sure if he told the guy or if he, the guy was just surprised when you know it came out. But you know what? Foo Fighters is Dave Grohl's band. Yeah, yeah. That is right, his right. band. Yeah. There's never been any illusion that all the other guys coming in were of equal weight. Right. But to hear Don Felder tell it, they told him, like, you're going to be a full, equal member of the band. And then he was not treated that way musically, and he was not treated that way financially. And he got very upset about that. And so I can understand, like, the power dynamics being different. But when it comes to money, it, unless it's stated ahead of time, that's kind of fucked up. I mean, yes, I hear what you're saying. I don't think it's such a bad thing to have tears in a band based on who's writing the songs, who's has whose creativity is fueling the engine and which songs are working and creating the fame. But I think what makes it worse in this case is that this is his song that he wrote. And there's kind of an unspoken rule in bands that you're in some kind of extra creative control of the stuff you originate, which is totally fair. Right. I would and say that the, the rule basically is you can produce and write the song and perform the song however you want. But we all might decide it doesn't make the cut for the album. Right. But I'm not going to go in and change your song. I'll just say, well, that just doesn't meet the threshold for the right. album. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I think a conversation was warranted. Well, the other thing that I read, too, that you probably <laughs> yes, read Yes, I agree. A conversation is warranted. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> was that they were actively trying to get everyone's voice on the record and songwriting. Because there's a song sung by Randy Meister and there's a song sung by Joe Walsh also. Yep. So really, Felder's the only one that gets left out of that. Yeah. Is it possible Felder sounds terrible? Listen, Joe Walsh doesn't have a great voice either. Mm, no. I just think he has a unique voice. voice. I, like, voice. I, I agree, he doesn't have a great voice, but I like Joe Walsh's voice. It works. Voice. Yeah. He's a character voice. I don't know what Don Felder's voice sounds like. 
I couldn't tell you because it gives the opportunity to hear it. So. Ooh, oh, here, here we go. Let's go. Let's go. Like fucking. Let's go full psychopath, right? Don Henley didn't want Don Felder to have two big hits. Don Felder would have had number one songwriting credit on Hotel California. Then if he comes in, Victim of Love is a hit with him singing. This could be. This is competition. Do you think you would have heard the song and been like, well, there's no danger of that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If Don Henley <laughs> thought this was going to be a big hit, then I revoke all the nice things I've said about him. <laughs> all righty. We're, we're going a little long here. Let's jump into the next song on our focus list, Try and Love Again, which is not the Sheryl Crow song. <laughs> it is the, it is the Eagle song. my favorite song on the album by the way this is my favorite find on the album yeah this is also my find on the album. i love the song a lot and i actually think that randy meisner's voice is great i love his voice got a lot of character can't say the same i think the lyric writing here is is lacking i think they were trying to i don't think they have a good enough song they have this idea that they can just spruce up not such great writing especially in the verses with lots of beautiful harmony and for Mm. me it just it still just reads as kind of bland. Now, the bass sounds good here, unsurprisingly, because it's a bass player's tune. And I will say that I can hear, perhaps strongest in this song, a connection to modern bands like Blitz and Trapper and Dawes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, that was, those are two of the ideas that came to my head here. So I don't necessarily think it's a bad track, but I just 
don't think it distinguishes itself. It's your one songwriting shot. And my biggest complaint is the gonna try vamp at the very end. <laughs> really, it should have faded out a minute earlier. It would have been a gonna much try, stronger Gonna try, gonna try, gonna try. Okay, we get it. We get it. Just keep doing it. Just keep doing it. You get like 40 seconds of that. <laughs> this song I picture as the bridge between rock country, country rock, and pop country. This leads into pop country that the 80s and 90s, there was a big pop country explosion. And I do think that this kind of leads in that direction. I'm not a big fan of pop country, but... So imagine three triangles with rounded corners and then intersect them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is pop country. And I I really dig it. I actually, I really like it. And again, I have a little bit of a soft spot for Andy Meisner. In the story of the band, he sounds like the most reasonable one by far. It's like nobody had a big problem with Randy Meisner, except for Glenn Fry, who was a gigantic dick about the fact that Randy Meisner had anxiety over being able to hit the high notes and take it to the limit and would just berate him about it. Jesus. And even when he was like, I can't hit it tonight, he's like, fuck you, we're doing that as an encore. And he's like, but we don't have to do it. You understand? Like, we could choose to do we something else. It's not baked into the set. He's like, Other songs. Yeah. But Tom, that's just... That's just uh, Detroit-style coaching. That's all that is. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Yeah. Some of those notes in Take It to the Limit are really high. Yeah, and Take It to the Limit is a fantastic song. It is really absolutely like a lot. Yeah. crusher. That might be my favorite Eagles song. Yeah. It's, it's the one really I listen good. to the most frequently of any Eagles song, personally. All right. I know we're going long here. We're going to wrap it up. We're going to do The Last Resort, which, by the way, Adam, t- before we move on, to your note, the... Second to last song on the album is Try and Love Again, Randy Meisner. Okay. Last Resort is the last song on the album. She came from Providence, one in Rhode Island, where the old world shadows hang heavy in the air. She packed her hopes and dreams like a refugee Just as her father came across the sea She heard about a place people were smiling They spoke about the red man's way how they love the land They came from everywhere To the great divide Seeking a place to stand Or a place to hide Down in the crowded bars Out for a good time But it's like a bear They call it paradise I don't know why Somebody laid the mountains low While the town got
guys, you know what I really needed at the end of this record was Don Henley lecturing me about the plight of the Red Men. <laughs> <laughs> For an inexplicable seven minutes and 25 seconds. <laughs> and oh, also, this he wrote one fucking melody. He wrote one melody, and he beats you over the head with it for seven minutes and 25 seconds. I think, no, no, to be clear, I think the subject matter is eye-rolling, but I do, the lyrics are better. Don's voice is, is solid. You get the resignation in his voice. It's a good performance. And I think the songwriting here is reasonably strong. I just, yeah, I just don't know if I can unroll my eyes after hearing some of this. I can't do the a song where, I think the cardinal sin of the construction of this song is in the melody. And it is that the most interesting part of the melody is the first thing that he sings. And he sings three other lines that are way less interesting. And then he sings that thing again. And then three other lines that are way less interesting. And then he does it for seven and a half goddamn minutes. <laughs> he does go on for a while. Yeah. You know what it's like? It's like a Dylan song, but he's just going too slow. Right? <laughs> like, I do like this song for the record, Adam. I'm, I'm trashing it. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple lines in there that still stick out in my head that my dad and I often quote. One of them was, you call someplace paradise, kiss it goodbye. I think that's a great line. I also didn't really think about, but as the song works its way through, it's actually working its way across the U.S., so it starts in Providence where, you know, the white yeah. man comes over. Mm -hmm. And then by the end, you're on the coast of California sailing to Lahaina, Hawaii, where you're also going to do the same thing. You're going to set up your your churches. You're going to set up your Jesus stores. So I, I thought from a storytelling standpoint, it was cool how they kind of worked their way from east to west, kind of the way that, uh, you know, the settlers did. So it was, a, it was a cool journey. And that piano breakdown, I thought, was nice as well. You know what I really want to do? I really want to get into property records and see if Don Henley owns a fucking big-ass estate in Hawaii that he keeps the fucking natives off of, because that would just be too fucking perfect, because you know that he is a major landowner out west. Of course. The rich man comes and rapes the land. Right. I'm like, motherfucker, you got like an 8,000-square-foot fucking house in Hawaii you go to two times a year. Fuck you. And he probably already had that. At this moment. <laughs> yes, That's right, right. From the He's greatest hits money. He's making platinum album in yeah. fucking, like, you know, right. 365 weeks on the record, on the charts album money. He's yeah. in Lahaina writing that line. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, hey, get the fuck off my property. <laughs> <laughs> the rich man rapes the land. Right. <laughs> <laughs> fucking asshole. Oh, man. So, one thing I have to mention, and I want you all to do this right now guys on the call and listeners as well. Can you go to five minutes and 42 seconds into this track on Spotify and tell me if there is not an error in the upload that makes it kind of do a little like quarter second jump forward. I heard it every time I listened to it on my Spotify account. You said 542? 542. So right. give yourself like a two or three second runway. Yeah. It's either that or it's like a really weird vocal punch that they that they clipped wrongly in on the tape or something. I think it's because I listened to it a bunch. I was like, I'm like, am I losing my mind here? Tom got out his vinyl, his his, his Japanese side by side vinyl comparison, <laughs> his his recent repressing, and they all. That's a, <laughs> so this is the one that's available on Spotify is a remaster. But it sounds like there's a fucking error in the upload. 
like there was just a little bit of data lost and they lost a quarter second of the song and they kind of stitch it together because it sounds like even the whole band just kind of jumps forward for a second. I may be wrong. Listeners, write us in if you can hear this as well. And if I am right, the third best selling album in America <laughs> and you have on that album an error upload error what the fuck people get better at your goddamn jobs i swear to god everybody sucks at their jobs <laughs> except for us when we tell you whether or not you need to listen to an album before you die and we're gonna do that right now we're gonna go around the room and vote and tell you do you need to hear hotel california before you die i am going first to adam and you can just say yes and move on <laughs> well no, I, I wanted to give some credit to what was said earlier and i can i can see rob's point and some of the earlier tweets tom when you were going through the list of hits it sounded like an adult contemporary mix from a radio station in delaware <laughs> like it's drive time on soft rock 98 whatever however you got to hear this one i think it's a perfect mix as in it's perfectly mixed but also there's a perfect mix of rock and ballads and country flavored stuff so Tom, yes. It's a yes for me. No big surprise. Throw it to somebody else. <laughs> I don't mean to undercut your opinion. I'm sorry. <laughs> I value your opinion very much, and I appreciate it. Phil, what say you? So this was a week, you know, I, I'm very familiar with this record. It was definitely sort of on in the house growing up. Very familiar. You know, there's a part of me that wants to say yes. And the reason is, is because I think you can determine whether you like Eagles or not in the first three songs, right? Like they give you the full range of what there is to like and not like about the band from songs track one to three. But in this particular case, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say you can pass on this. Hotel California is obviously an amazing song. This is impeccably produced dark side of the moon level production. I just think the Eagles' best songs are earlier in their catalog, the ones that actually like bring a tear to my eye. So as much as I want to say yes, also I want to push back against the Lebowski thing we didn't get into, but I I'm going to give this a no. I think you can pass on Hotel California. Ooh, unexpected. Curveball. Right, let's hear it. Yeah, Phil is weirdly miserly about handing out those yes votes. And <laughs> the record will show that. I think, I think I've got a little better. Rob's got a spreadsheet. He can bust yeah. the numbers out, I'm sure. Yeah, for as much crap as I talked on it, I think for a record this popular and really on the strength of the title track alone, my premise has always been you're not going to hear it unless you listen to an album with it up on there. I, sp I guess I have to go yes. I feel like this, there's some other good stuff on here too. It's very palatable. I think that's my main complaint. So if you're an aficionado of butt rock, you know, <laughs> dive in. no, I think, uh, I, think I feel like music is fucking to. sucks. Pussy. <laughs> Definitely. The title track is worth the price of admission. So yes, listen to it. Well, I guess it doesn't matter if I say yes or no. Cause even if I say no, it's still going to get on the list. But I'm actually going to go with a no. And the reason I'm going to go with a no is because I don't think that this added to my musical education. And I don't take the same approach as Rob. As you all know, it's been a 
bone of contention between us. I think you have heard Life in the Fast Lane. I think you have heard Hotel California. And I don't think you really need to hear much else on this album. Although I did like some of the other songs. For the third best-selling album in America of all time, I was very underwhelmed. And I don't feel like I'm going to be able to bust out some really great Eagles trivia and or, oh, if you think you like this Eagles song, wait till you hear this one because of listening to this album. It didn't really add to my appreciation of a band that I don't even particularly like all that much. I don't dislike Eagles, but they're not my favorite band. It didn't add to my appreciation, and I didn't feel like it pointed me in a huge direction of stuff that was to come. So I'm going to go no, but that is irrelevant. It's a tie. And so, Eagles, you got in on a technicality. There you go, you smarmy bastards. You're on the list with an asterisk. (laughs) <laughs> Smash cut to Adam shedding a single tear by right. the side of the road. <laughs> Over top of Pretty Maids All in a Road. Or All in a Row. I, that was my favorite song, by the way. Pretty Maids All in a That's Row. That's a great that's, tune, that's man. It's the Joe Walsh song. Yeah. That's the Joe Walsh yeah. song, yeah. yeah. Great All melody. right. So I think that the, we have two things left to do. Not I think. I know. I've been doing this song, this show long enough. I know that we have two <laughs> a couple things times. left to do. We're going to throw this one over to Rob, who has got some mailbag missives that he is going to bust out for us. Thanks, Thomas. We have one from Dave from Michigan. He writes, hi, guys. I've been digging into your catalog for a few months. Really love the show. First episode that piqued my interest was the Kid Rock episode. I'm about the same age as you, and I've lived in Michigan most of my life, and I've had to deal with Kid Rock since the early 90s. Given my background and familiarity with them, I loved hearing all of your takedowns. It's always interesting to hear people from other states' takes on him, and I'm glad to know that people outside of Michigan think that he is garbage, too. (laughs) All of your research on him was spot on, and I'm glad to hear you call him out as being a grifter. But I do want... (laughs) I do want to call out one thing he said, which is that Michigan is an economically depressed state, which is not true. Oh. Michigan actually has one of the wealthiest counties in the country, has a growing tech industry, not to mention the ever-present auto and manufacturing industries. We go on. We have some of the most beautiful tourist places. He basically works for the Michigan State Tourism Tourism Department. <laughs> He says there's a growing tech industry, auto and manufacturing, some of the most beautiful tourist places along the Great Lakes. It does have the unfortunate stigma, however, of birthing Kid Rock. But they have all the best Robocops. I agree. Exactly. And but plenty of great music as well. Love your podcast. Keep up the great work. Thank you for writing that. And we have one more missive here from farther away. This is David from Madrid, Spain. Oh, hmm. And he writes, hey, guys, I discovered your show last spring through the Devo episode. And as a fellow music nerd, musician and overall complainer, it was like bumping into a group of old friends I never knew I had. From there, I went back and listened and forward and listened to all your episodes throughout the summer, including some binge listens. Some of my favorites so far have been The Dead, Sparks, Hanoi Rocks and Big Star. But I listen religiously every week regardless of the artist and actually some of the most fun episodes so far have been on albums I've never really cared for. So let that be a lesson to you listeners. Nice. And he says, PS I'm sure Dimery didn't include Billy breathes or rift on his list, but as a fish <laughs> fan, I love your occasional references to Trey and company and would love a special episode about your relationship with the band and that trip to big Cypress that Phil occasionally brings up <laughs> just an idea. Mm. Phil still has a piece that he got from there, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I, I actually bumped into a ticket 
the ticket as well, sort of recently. Hmm. Uh, I just found some old stuff, and it was, and there was a bunch of other concert tickets. That could be a fun idea. You're right. I don't think Fish has any place on this list, so we definitely like to cover them in a little more depth sometime soon. And as you can imagine, the anecdotes will be flying, especially from one <laughs> Phil. So that is a good call. And three of us on this call today were at Big Cypress. So yeah. I think I'm busy that night. We have to try to convince Adam that Fish is a relevant band for him to like. <laughs> It'll be a fun episode. No, no. Uh, thank you. It'll be David, pretty so tough much. now. They're getting less and less relevant as the moments pass. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think they haven't been relevant for a long time, actually. <laughs> actually, way past their relevance? That's Adam's sweet spot. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfect time for me to start liking them now. All right. That's, that follows the curve. But thank you for writing from so far away from Spain. Really cool, David. Appreciate that. And yeah, we're cooking up some ideas for different things to do in 2024. So stay tuned. Maybe we'll maybe we'll get fish in there somehow, some way. And if you want to write to us and make suggestions for how special episodes we can do, or just tell us about your enjoyment of the show, how you're turning friends on, or how you're binge listening to us on long road trips, we love it all. Send it our way at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. And Thank you to everybody for writing in. Thank you for providing additional context. You know, we really do try to give you as much of a cohesive story as we can every week. Sometimes there's a lot of information. Sometimes there's not a lot of information. Sometimes we're going to get things right. Sometimes we're going to get things wrong. But we appreciate you listening to us and hearing the story that we have to spin about these classic albums. The only thing left to do, dear listeners, is to get our homework assignment for next week. I have the Albinator here. It's been doing a surprising amount of cocaine for as chill-seeming as it is. And I'm going to bring it out. Just don't get it in the knobs, dude. Yeah, exactly. Just don't get it in the knobs and everything yeah. will be fine. Yeah. You can get it in the knobs. It's, just, it's the sliders that really kill Right, right. The right. sliders yeah, can't yeah, work. Good point. Yeah, yeah. good point. Yeah. So let's see what we are going to be listening to next week. Without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to... The album is She's So Unusual by Cindy Lauper, which is accurate. Yeah, for- <laughs> so that one's pretty accurate. That's pretty accurate. This is a fun one. I've heard this one a bunch. Okay. I like it. Yeah. Nice. I have not listened to this entire album. I'm guessing this has it's girls just want to have fun and time after time on it. Correct. All right. Yeah. Both great songs. Oh, she does Kathy time after Logan. time? Both mega hits for a reason. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know I thought that was somebody else. Belinda Carlisle. I'm I'm mixing things up. Anyway. I feel like Girls Just Want to Have Fun is one of those ones where you always see people try to do it in karaoke. And then they're like, oh, shit. That opening it's note is really insanely high. high. Yeah. And they don't they're like get. Yeah, it's not. That's not the hardest one. Right. It gets higher. <laughs> like, Buckle up. She's got a great voice. Yeah. I'm really excited about this, actually. This would be a really fun album. So there you have it. For next week, listen to She's So Unusual by Cindy Lauper. Thank you very much for listening with us to the bitter end of our, I guess, takedown of the Eagles. But they made it on the list, so I guess our praise of the Eagles. It depends on who you're talking about this week. <laughs> for 1001 Album Complaints, I have been Tom. I'm Adam. I am Phil. And I'm Rob. Boosh.
Oh, that was a really fucking long episode.